Jeff McKee, a professor at OSU. We're going to talk about Genesis evolution a little bit. We're going to talk about faith and science. Um, so those are the big topics. So I thought to start, why don't we, uh, why don't you share a little bit of how you got uh, your history related to science. So how did you become a professor? How did you end up studying what you study, teach what you teach? Like what's the, the Reader's Digest version of sort of finding your way into that? <laughs> yeah, well, it all started when I was 13 years old and I was watching a National Geographic special uh, at Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. They had Louis Leakey, this famous anthropologist, and he was walking down the side of Olduvai Gorge and the narrator said, with every step he takes, he sends another 6,000 years into man's past. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and so I uh, studied anthropology at Miami University for my undergraduate and Washington University for my uh, graduate degree. And um, then a year after I got my PhD, I was working as a... Uh, a computer consultant uh, for the Wash U Medical School and I got a call from a professor uh, who I worked with and he said I, I got this letter uh, from Philip Tobias in South Africa and um, he's looking for someone to teach anatomy and do paleoanthropology which is this study of the fossils of human evolution and uh, you know, the first thing I said was, no, no way, I'm going to South Africa. And a few days later, um, I called my parents and I said, what would you think if I went overseas for three years? <laughs> and uh, my dad said, well, if you're going to, I forget what the hotspots were at the time, Libya or Lebanon, I'd say it was a bad idea. So I said, how about South Africa? And he said, well, that's third on the list. <laughs> so it, it took me... Uh, a couple months, but then I decided, once I got the job offer, that I'd go, despite the fact that South Africa was under a state of emergency. And so I went and uh, I got to work at two fossil sites. I led an excavation at a site called Taong, uh, which is on the edge of the Kalahari Desert, and famous for a 1924 discovery of a uh, skull of a human ancestor. And then I also worked at uh, Makapanskat, uh, which is in the northern part of South Africa, and it's a slightly older site at about three million years old. And after uh, ten years in South Africa, uh, we had gone through the transition from apartheid to post-apartheid, and I got to vote in that election uh, that elected Nelson Mandela, because I was a permanent resident of South Africa. But after Mandela was elected, we had six months where South Africa was the most wonderful place on earth. But then it descended into remorseless crime. And so uh, we had a one-year-old son and decided it was time to leave. And uh, we were looking for a place in the United States. And um, my wife, who's a doctor, applied at a number of places. We got in at Ohio State, which was fantastic for me because that's coming home. I'm from Ohio originally. And uh, I've been there ever since. 
I started off doing what I call mercenary anthropology. I was just teaching for money. And um, then I worked my way to a half-time position and then through to a full-time position and all my way up to a, a tenured professor. So here I am. So that's your journey into anthropology and to where you are now. Uh, setting that aside, what's, what's been your faith journey? Like, How did you kind of end up where you are now in your faith? Well, I grew up as a kind of generic Protestant. Uh, we went from church to church, and I did my catechism in a Lutheran church. But uh, eventually that kind of faded away. I wasn't really satisfied with faith and uh, Christianity, and I became an atheist for decades. Um, and I wasn't a militant atheist. You know, I didn't push people away from uh, their faith, but uh, it just wasn't for me. Then about 10 years ago, I was invited to be on a panel discussion. And uh, the discussion was on faith and evolution. And I was supposed to be the atheist on the panel. And I was going to be seated right next to Francis Collins. Uh, he's the former director of the Human Genome Project. And he's currently uh, the head of the NIH, the National Institute of Health. So he's a pretty big name. And he also went through a similar journey of going from atheism to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And he'd written a book about that, so he was kind of the star. And uh, so I thought, well, I better think about this very seriously. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, okay, first thing to do is to disprove the existence of God. And I quickly realized, no, I can't do that because uh, science deals with the natural and God is supernatural. Hmm. And so I thought, well, I've got to figure out something here. And I thought about it more and more and more. And so I can't disprove God. Um, I don't like this idea that I got from my uh, uh, Protestant churches about, you know, this... Um, guy in the clouds, you know, this white guy with a long beard <laughs> in the clouds uh, telling us what to do and what not to do. And so I thought, well, what if God is more than that? Hmm. And I started thinking it through bit by bit by bit and started looking around me and thought, well, what if I look at it from a different angle? Forget this guy in the clouds and just look at it from a different angle, not from a scientific perspective, not looking for evidence but just looking at it from another angle. Could I come to have faith in something called God? Yeah. And before we actually had the panel discussion, I had come back to faith. I had decided, yes, there is a God that I can uh, accept and deal with. And uh, it was a couple years later that I came back to Christianity, but that brought me back to faith that... Um, God and my science were completely compatible. We just had to look at them from different angles. So you were asked to come onto a panel, and you had on the panel an individual who had been an atheist but had, was a person of faith now and scientist and wrote a book and was well-known. And you were originally asked to be on it to represent sort of the non-faith view. Right. But then being on the panel with this individual who, who was, you respected... By the time the panel comes around, you're, you're back to faith. Well, you really messed up that panel. Yeah, I, I, I did, you know. Um, 
it was supposed to be, you know, conflict and whatnot, but there were four of us on the panel and we all agreed. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. Um, so then you mentioned, uh, it was later that you kind of came back to the Christian faith, you know, sort of entering into the idea that there could be something supernatural versus sort of this particular expression of faith in Christianity. What, what's a little bit of that journey? Well, even when I was an atheist, I thought Jesus was just the coolest dude, mm. you know? <laughs> yeah, so, me too. That, that part of it was pretty easy. But I had absolutely no intention of becoming a church-going person or, or think of myself as a Christian. But my son got into Christianity and was involved with the church, North Church. And they were going to go to El Salvador. And he wanted to go and he needed a chaperone. And uh, so he asked one of his friends who was old enough um, to be the chaperone, but I said, I'll do it. <laughs> and he looked at me like, Dad, you're an atheist. And I said, no, I was an atheist, but um, I'm not anymore, and, and uh, I'd like to go to El Salvador for a mission trip. And so I went there, and it was just a phenomenal experience. Um, it was a real awakening experience to go down there and see these people of faith in, in their church, they have almost nothing in the way of possessions. Mm -hmm. And many of them live in great poverty. But you get them into that church and they sing at the top of their lungs, they praise God like you wouldn't believe. And so I was just there for a week, but it changed me a lot, it got me thinking about church. And so I started going to North Church and uh, I liked it. And what I liked about it is that it wasn't what I had been brought up with in terms of Protestantism. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a different kind of God. It wasn't this God telling us what to do and what not to do. It was some God that we were thankful for. And that's something that's been consistent in my whole life is I've always been a very thankful person. Mm. That's why Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. <laughs> and uh, so I kept on going. And um, then the next year I went to El Salvador again with my son. And although the first trip was awakening, the second trip was absolutely transformational. And that's when I learned that God is a God of love. Mm. And what sprung that on me was the song they were singing, Dios es amor, which is God is love. And I thought, that's it. That's the definition of God that I've been looking for. And I, you know, as I said, God's a lot more, but uh, that was um, where I could hang my hat, was that God is love. And that really inspired me, so it was very transformational in my life. I came back, got baptized. I'd been baptized when I was young, but I got baptized as an adult, willingly. That was a very special day. <laughs> and uh, then, sadly, North Church fell apart. And uh, so I've been looking around for churches, and that's how I ended up here. Yeah. I really like this uh, ministry. That's great. Um, so you have a uh, book that you're working on, on yes. the intersection of faith and science, called currently called Divine Reconciliation. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, tell, us, tell us about that. Okay, well, it was also in El Salvador when I decided to write the book. It's called uh, Divine Reconciliation, The Crossroads of Science and Faith. Because I think it's important that 
uh, people don't see science and faith as opposites and as being against each other. And, you know, so a lot of people look at me and say, you know, how can you be a Christian and still study human evolution? And so I decided I needed to write a book on that. Now, Francis Collins, who I talked about earlier, he wrote a book on it called The Language of God. Mm. Um, but I didn't agree with him on all things, and I wanted to give my anthropological perspective mm. on how science and faith can work together. And I, I, I take it beyond not only are they compatible, but they can work together, mm. that we can face a lot of issues, uh, whether it be environmental issues or racial issues, science and faith, and uh, in terms of the racial issues in particular, uh, anthropology can work with faith to try to resolve these, these problems that we shouldn't really be having, mm. because too much is antagonistic rather than you know, just two different views of the same thing. What, so the idea of faith and science working together towards issues like in the environment, race issues, what are the strengths of science, what are the strengths of faith as you see them, as far as what they might bring to the table? Well, for example, in race, I'm an anthropologist, a biological anthropologist, and I know a lot about human variation, where it comes from, how it varies. I teach human variation and the genetics of it and uh, the history of race and racism. And from an anthropological perspective, uh, humans are all one race because there's more variation within each perceived race than there is between any perceived race. And so that is the first step, is knowing that we're more similar than we are different. I'm as similar to you as I am to a black man, as I am to an El Salvadoran in terms of our genes. And we just have different life experiences. So the similarity being from, a, a, from genes, the biology, you know, that, you know, so, so from, from the anthropological perspective, right. uh, if you take out the sort of like cultural conditioning, social constructs and stuff, we have like down to the hard science, like physically, there's an immense amount of similarity. So the, the, the tension and the divide is happening on a, on a social level. Exactly. Yeah. What strengths does faith bring to that conversation from your perspective? Faith, um, that's another product of going to El Salvador. There I'm working with people whose skin is slightly darker, but we could sit in the same church, sing our lungs out to the same God, and become one. And I think that's what faith does. It brings people together as one, irrespective of uh, their skin color or their hair type or, or yeah. shape of their nose or, or whatever. Yeah. And um, so faith can definitely help uh, resolve racism. And I find that in, in uh, environmentalism, there are all sorts of faith-based environmental groups. Mm -hmm. And they can work together with the scientists. And because faith uh, depends on God and most religions have uh, an element of responsibility for the environment. Most text, uh, holy texts of different kinds say that we have dominion over the earth and that God gave us dominion, and that gives us responsibility, like you were talking about this morning. Yeah. And uh, 
So I, I think they merge perfectly in terms of race, in terms of environmentalism, and probably a whole bunch of other things. I focus on environmentalism and race because those are two things that my career has led me to study. Yeah. So what do you teach at OSU? What's your elevator pitch for what you teach or study or research you do? What's your, um, what's your, what's your role there? At my role at OSU is basically as the primary paleoanthropologist. So, um, paleoanthropologists study fossil evidence for human evolution. And since I had excavated in South Africa at two sites, uh, I have the most experience in that. And so I teach human evolution. I get to throw in a lot of my personal experiences from South Africa, from the excavations. And, um, but as an anthropologist, um, I have to be a bit more rounded than that, so I also teach an introduction to physical anthropology, which I prefer calling biological anthropology, and that involves genetics and human variation and, and all sorts of things. And my research uh, has shifted from the fossil stuff to looking at human population growth today and its effect on uh, other species. Mm. Because right now we're going through a mass extinction yeah. which is the sixth one this planet has had, and humans are largely responsible for that. Mm. And so I've been uh, doing various models of how population growth and population density relates to threats to uh, species that are still in existence and how to resolve that. Have you, um, where are you at in that process? That's fascinating. What's, um, are you, do you have some findings already? Are you still in the middle of, of the research? Well, that'll go on for a long time. <clears throat> but... Uh, what I did, and I'm trying to remember the dates, I guess the dates don't matter, is uh, I created a model, a mathematical model, of the relationship between uh, human population density and the number of threatened species of mammals and birds. It turns out there's a really high correlation. Yeah. And after we found that, uh, I wrote a book called Sparing Nature, mm. and uh, that did fairly well. And then 10 years later, I went back and used the same model and looked at updated data on human population density and threats to uh, species of animals and birds. And I found out that 10 years later, my model had been correct. Mm. And it's like when we first saw this coming off the computer, it's like, yes, we were right. And then it's like, oh, no, we were right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we were right about this, and I didn't want to be. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Because I imagine that that's bad news. Yeah. What are you? What what solutions do you propose? Well, <laughs> I mean, we're we're studying Genesis right now. We're we're writing the creation narrative. There's an immense amount of implication around what it means to care for our environment. What, based on your the research that you do, the book you wrote, uh, sparing nature. What are your thoughts? Well, what do we do? Well, the problem. And this is where it kind of comes into conflict with faith. Sure. Is that the, the uh, human population is, has overgrown its sustainability. Yeah. And so we need to reduce the size of the human population. Now, in Genesis, it says, you know, go forth and multiply and fill the earth. Well, the earth is full. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've made the exact same theological conclusion 
in a paper I wrote and maybe it made it in a sermon, but although maybe not where it's like, people are like, no, I need to, you know, have a big fan, you know, I need to have a big family or God wants me to have children, uh, which is fine for anyone who, who uh, we, we have a, we have a son, but, uh, the premise that, you know, go and fill the earth, it's done. You know, there might be other reasons God's inviting you to start a family, right. but, but as far as filling the earth, we're full. Right. And so, uh, we need to reduce the size of the human population. And so my students say, well, how do we do that? And I say, well, there's two ways to reduce the size of the human population. One is to increase the death rate. Two is to decrease the birth rate. Yeah. And we know what causes babies, so we can easily decrease the birth rate. Yeah. And if every family who wanted to have uh, children stopped at two, then, since there are a lot of people who don't reproduce, then the human population slowly shrank down to a more sustainable size. Yeah. We don't have to be killing off people or anything, we just have to reproduce less. But uh, that's the difference between coming to the conclusion, well, we should reduce the birth rate. We can, we can reduce that without hurting people. There's ways to do that, right. without causing harm. Um, as opposed to like, well, we just should kill more people, you know, and reduce it. But that, you know, science itself, you know, doesn't necessarily make a judgment call there. You're getting into the question of ethics, morality, right. what is right and what is wrong. That itself is an intersection of faith and science, or at least morality and science. Right. Well, you can get morality from science. Sure. And, you know, just like God gives us dominion, science gives us dominion over what happens on this planet. And so I, I was... Uh, <clears throat> invited to speak in Washington, D.C. at the Woodrow Wilson Institute. And uh, I was speaking to people from United Nations, World Health Organization, and whatnot, and telling them my, my fossil stuff. And they uh, said at the end, okay, so what, what do we do about this? How, how do we reduce the size of the human population? I said, that's, that's your job. You're the policy people. I'm, I'm just the old bones guy. I just <laughs> gave you, you know, my thing about mass extinction and, and population and uh, species threats. Now it's your turn to come up with policy based on that. They said, no, we want to hear from you what you would do. Yeah. And so on the spot, I came up with uh, what I've since called the three pillars mm. of how to reduce the size of the human population. One is widespread availability of contraception yeah. and kind of removing the stigma from contraception. Two, which should have been one, is education. People yeah. just need to be educated, yeah. not just on environmental issues, but educated all around so they can see the world around them and make judgment calls yeah. based on knowledge rather than, uh, you know, whims. Yeah. And the third, probably the most important in uh, countries other than the United States, but it's important here too, is the empowerment of women. Mm. So many uh, women in other societies have no choice in their lives mm. and even in their reproductive lives. Yeah. If we empower women in, in the family, in the, in the village, in the city, in the state, yeah. then we're going to see uh, a big change. So those, it's those three. Yeah. The contraception, the education, and the empowerment of women. Well, those are certainly ones that I've, I've heard, and um, as, 
as goals to work towards and a lot of humanitarian organizations and faith-based organizations around the world are trying to pursue it. So I, I, I definitely sense that this is um, that's something for a variety of reasons people are working towards. Um, let's get into human, evo human evolution. First, um, uh, you know, faith and science, in my experience, have been a place of tension. Right. Um, for a variety of reasons. I have people very close to me who um, uh, are not a fan of, the, of evolution, what it represents, and how it seems to uh, take scripture off of a place of prominence or sort of um, really wrecks the, the notion of faith. That's, that's the perspective. My, my first question for you is, um, as somebody who teaches human, human evolution, um, What's been your relationship with the church? Have have you run into and encountered people who've thought little of you, thought argued you were wrong, maybe even considered you evil for teaching or, or believing it? There are those people who think of me as uh, wrong and perhaps even evil, but I look at look at it at or from a different perspective, and that what I do and an understanding of human evolution is not against God or against Genesis. It actually kind of enhances it. I believe that God wrote his word not only in scripture, but in the sedimentary layers and the sequences of fossils. And I believe that what I do in terms of my excavations and my study of human evolution is revealing that part of the word. Mm. That God put it there for us to see and wants us to see it yeah and I don't think that's evil I think I'm doing what God wanted me to do um, others don't see it that way but I'm going to respect their opinion that's one thing I learned in South Africa is that if you dignify someone else's perspective then you're going to get a lot more done mm. and get along a lot better uh, when I was working at Taong I worked with uh, some people, mostly Tswana people, um, as in Botswana, and uh, also some Zulus and, and other tribes. And um, they have their Christian beliefs, but they also have a bunch of uh, traditional beliefs that are quite varied. And I kind of got involved with their traditional beliefs in, in different ways. And although I didn't believe the same things they believed, I respected them and gave them dignity. And so uh, they didn't think of me as a white man. As a matter of fact, they're playing some music on my boombox at the party I have at the end of the field season, and there's this song um, that was in Zulu. And I asked uh, one of my workers, Eddie, um, what are they singing? And he said, our mothers are sad because we want to kill the white man. Hmm. And then the next more upbeat verse came on. I said, what are they singing now? And he said, our mothers are happy because we want to keep her because we killed the white man. <laughs> and then he saw the expression on my face. You know, and he said, oh, no, not you, Mr. Jeff. You're not a white man. Hmm. So um, that's another thing where faith comes in. If you dignify other people's beliefs, dignify other people's faith, then... They don't see you as a certain type of person, that, not a white man or, or a boss or, or whatever. I was just 
Mr. Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. So important. Um, so this is obviously probably too complicated to share, but just paint us a picture. What's the world according to human evolution? Consider somebody who's kind of grown up in the Christian faith, may or may not have uh, what they learned in high school, elementary school, maybe even college, they've forgotten. I'm not saying that's me, but, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, but uh, it's familiar, of course, with the Genesis account, very familiar with what scripture, Christian, uh, Christian theology around the, the intent of creation. Um, tell me kind of your perspective of the world it's from the perspective <laughs> of science specifically, your studies from, of human evolution. What's, what's happened to bring us to, uh, to, to uh, the, not the modern world, but, you know, the world uh, post-history? Well, that is a complicated question. Um, I teach an entire course on human evolution, so if you have a semester, you can uh, come along and, and learn all of it. Can I audit? But, <laughs> yeah. And come sure. sit in? I might. Um, but basically, the, the slice of time that I study is the past six million years. Yeah. And six million years ago, between five and seven million years ago anyway, is when our ancestors and the ancestors of modern chimps diverge and split. And since then, uh, the first characteristic of our ancestors what they, is that they stood up and walked on two legs. And then the brain expanded, became more and more complex, and uh, eventually the brain became complex enough that we could have language. And what's, once we had language, then we started making stone tools and that continued to progress uh, to more complicated things, eventually art, yeah. and uh, then agriculture, then industrialization, and now here we are. Yeah. So there, I covered the whole thing, <laughs> yeah. the whole semester in, in one minute. Um, Very quick time-lapse video. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but along the way, we diversified over the past 100,000 years. So the, the human species, the modern human species, which biologically we think of as the modern human race, um, originated 100,000 years ago. And then we started to diverge and adapt to different environments, which explains our different skin colors, our different facial shapes, our, our teeth, and everything. And uh, culturally, we diversified as well. Mm. And different groups value different things. So I, I was reading just this morning, someone was saying, well, what we value now is the economy. But it hasn't always been that way. The economy hasn't always been the, the central focus of uh, society or mm. even government. And so different people value different things. And uh, that can bring those values into conflict. But but going back to human evolution and and Genesis, um, I I see, obviously I don't take the origin story literally. I can't. But I see it as a very useful parallel. When you put it in the context of human evolution, it becomes much more interesting. Hmm. Because the, the initial sequences that you get in Genesis 1 of you know the fish or the plants and then the fish and whatnot that that all fits in very well with 
the evolution of life. And then the story of Adam and Eve, I think, fits very well because uh, when they eat from the tree of the fruit of knowledge, or eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, um, to me, that's when humans got language and higher thought. And that makes so much sense in terms of human evolution. And then, because they had that knowledge, they could tell good from evil. And my, my dog can tell good from bad, but he can't tell good from evil. Mm. And we can, because we have the language ability to talk about it. And so I think that so is... language the, gives you, is, is tied with the complex thought around what is good and evil, which right. is more complex and rich than what is right and wrong. Exactly. Or like, which is often tied to punishment or right. harm. But you could say something's bad because it hurts you, but you can also, more, in a more complex way, I'm just thinking out loud here, you can say something's evil because it hurts someone else or, you know, because it just is wrong for a bigger... For someone or something else. Yeah. Uh, but um, once Adam and Eve had that knowledge, then um, God punished them by saying, okay, well, I, Eve, I'm going to give you great pains in childbirth. And that fits so well with human evolution as well, the way we see the... Uh, brain expand throughout human evolution over those past six million years and the skull size getting greater and greater relative to the pelvic size of these upright uh, individuals walking on two legs and that's where the pain of birth comes from and but without that brain we wouldn't have that knowledge we wouldn't have language we wouldn't be able mm -hmm. to do all this so it all kind of fits together for me um, if you take the Genesis stories as parables and I, I think uh, there are clues in Genesis that it is a parable and not meant to be taken literally. Because after Cain uh, goes off, leaves Eden, goes east of Eden to the land of Nod, he, he finds a wife. Well, where did that wife come from? Hmm. You know, there were people in the land of Nod. And I think that's a clue that it was a parable about Adam and Eve and getting knowledge um, rather than a literal story. As if you were to leave faith behind, and we, the Genesis account behind even, and mm -hmm. this bigger idea of um, faith-based morality and what is right and wrong, and you were just to look at the world as, the, you know, just what could be observed, the evidence, um, what's the purpose of the world, you know, outside of faith? What, what, what is science, where does science leave us in regards to our understanding of why we're here? Or does it even answer that question, or is it capable of answering that question. Is that a fair? That's uh, something I've thought about a lot. And from a scientific, scientific perspective, it doesn't have to have a purpose. We don't have to have a why. Yeah. And when I was reading things for my book, I had to read a lot of Christian things and a lot of faith-based things, but I also read a lot of atheist things. Yeah. And uh, Richard Dawkins a famous atheist, um, said in his book, what is a why question? I thought, he's got a very good point there. Hmm. What is a why question? You know, because I was brought up, and this came up at the panel discussion as well, 
that science answers the how questions and religion answers the why questions. And then Richard Dawkins comes in and says, what's a why question? And why does there have to be a purpose? And uh, so my example of that is people often ask me, well, why did humans evolve in Africa and not someplace else? And what I give them as an answer is a how question. It's not why did we evolve there, it's how did it come that uh, apes that survived the Miocene were in Africa but went extinct elsewhere and that we evolved out of those Miocene apes. And so that's a how question. How did it come to be? It's not really a why. It's just what happened. But can, I mean, the idea of living without a why seems depressing. (laughs) On the other side, I'll add that oftentimes people want more answers to why questions than even faith provides. You know, like the big why question that we wrestle with in our faith that we honestly don't have a great answer for is why do good people suffer? You know, given the, our perspective of the world as Christians, it's a question that comes up and has come up uh, since the first laments, you know, of, mm-hmm. of ancient times. So there's, on, on the one side, it's like, well, we can't answer all why questions and it's, we, we sort of accept th- some things by faith. But at the same time, to remove the entire why and say why is irrelevant, I don't know, that just sounds depressing. Well, uh, I spent, I don't know, maybe 30 years as an atheist without a, a why question, and it was a very fulfilling time of my life. Mm. And I didn't really feel that I needed to have a purpose, that I was there, I was enjoying myself, I was learning things, I was helping other people learn things, yeah. and I was a very good person, I wasn't evil f- for being atheist. And uh, I basically just practiced being a good person to other people. But uh, that wasn't painful at all. It's actually harder to be a Christian than it is to be an atheist. Mm. You know, people say to me, well, you know, when you're an atheist, you didn't have the comforts of knowing God. And, but being a Christian, you have to really struggle to understand what's going on around you in the world. Mm. Yeah, as an atheist, you just kind of say, yeah, <laughs> it happens, you know? <laughs> but, That's a good point. But as a Christian, you have to think things through and, and reconcile a whole bunch of things. And that's, that's, that's a challenge. I've enjoyed the challenge since coming back to Christianity, but it's going to continue to be a challenge. I believe that faith is a journey. Yeah. And I'm on that journey. I think everybody's on their own journey in faith. And uh, science is a journey too. We keep on learning more and more and more. And uh, that's why I think they work well together is once you get them going in the same direction, then you got something very special. So when you're an atheist, you you seem to suggest it's like, well, stuff just happens. It's just, you know, who cares? I mean, we didn't say who cares. We just... You know, I think that naturally humans have evolved to care mm. and to be good to each other. And that from an evolutionary perspective, we do a lot better if we're good to each other than if uh, we hurt each other. So the struggle once you came back to the faith you were articulating isn't you went from not caring to caring. You went from 
a certain level of what time spent thinking about it, worrying about it. I mean, what's the what was the shift? Yeah. Um, when I first came back to faith, I told you, you know, those few weeks I was working in, that was actually the first time I had thought seriously about God since I became an atheist. Mm. And all I had to do was think about it. Mm. And that led to all sorts of complications. <laughs> but uh, um, it's a journey that I started and that I'm continuing on, and I uh, look forward to more. Yeah. Uh, someone asked... Um, around the conversation of uh, sort of our Genesis account and how you're interpreting it in light of what you understand of evolution, they wanted to, they wanted to hear your thoughts on how you interpret the fall. Sort of in the Genesis account, it's like creation was good and then evil through temptation and brokenness of humanity kind of sort of infects creation and that's how we see the world violent like it is, nature violent like it is even, even beyond humans. What's your uh, theological scientific theories about what that could be referring to, the fall from your, uh, from your view, vantage point of evolution? Yeah, well, as I was saying earlier, I think the fall is actually knowledge of good and evil. That's how it's defined in, in Genesis. And um, before that, you know, there, there wasn't good and evil because good and evil wasn't perceived. Because mm. if a, a lion goes out and catches an impala, um, that's not seen as evil or good or bad, it's, it's dinner, you know? And uh, so I think good and evil just wasn't perceived. Now when we see uh, species going extinct at a remarkable rate today in this sixth mass extinction that we're in, I think we can see that as, as evil. That's not nature playing out, as some would say. It's, it's something that we've done and that we have responsibility for. Mm. So, uh, but it's the, the fall is the perception of good and evil, not the existence of good and evil. So a lot of Christians uh, hold to a literal seven-day creation. Let's talk about that briefly. Um, What's um, so one perspective that I've heard is uh, this idea that it's not so much worried about the specifics, but just the belief that God could create the world. And I talked about this today in my sermon. Mm -hmm. What are your What's your response to someone who's like, "Well, I just want to be able to be able to say and believe that God could create the world in seven days, whether that is what really happened or not is irrelevant. I believe in a God who who's capable of it." What's your response to that? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot, and and uh, it's in reference to all the fossils that I find and the sedimentary layers and the fossil sequences that I was talking about. Yeah. Um, I have people say, well, God could have put those there, you know, and I say, well, he could have, but I don't think he would. Hmm. I don't think of God as a cosmic prankster, you know, try, trying to fool us. I think God is good. I think God is love. And I don't think God would put all those things there to deceive us. Mm. I think, as I was saying earlier, I think those are meant to be read like a holy text. It is the word of God coming out in fossils. It's coming out in uh, layers and layers and layers of life as it evolved. And so I, I think of 
evolution as revealed through these fossils, I think of evolution as a manifestation of God rather than a contradiction to God. What's your relationship to Christians who disagree with you? How do you deal with that on a personal level? On a personal level, they can still be my friends. (laughs) Um, No, I have lots of friends who are young earth creationists and like I was saying about uh, the beliefs in South Africa, I, I respect their beliefs. Yeah. Their beliefs are not the same as mine. That doesn't mean we can't be friends. We might have different political beliefs as well. Yeah. And I've Wait, that's possible? People, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you wonder if that's possible. <laughs> Sometimes we're not okay with it, but we're, we digress. <laughs> right. No, I, I've friends who are young earth creationists and they see what I do and they don't like it, but they respect it, just like I respect them. Yesterday I was in a Black Lives Matter uh, protest march and I have lots of friends on Facebook and whatnot who don't like the idea of Black Lives Matter. Mm. And so that doesn't mean we can't still be friends. And the same with the young earth creationists. If someone wanted, final question, if someone wanted to delve into faith and science, um, obviously your book's not out, um, but wanted to wrestle, maybe, maybe, maybe faiths, um, and specifically the Christian faith and its expression, its relationship with science over the years, especially in recent times in an American church, has been a holdup for them giving themselves wholly to Christ. It's just been a, a hang up. As, uh, where would you, what would you recommend them do? What would you recommend them read if they wanted to reconcile uh, their, what they've learned from the scientific community with what they want to commit themselves to as a person of faith? Well, obviously I want them to read my book, but it's, as you said, it's not published yet. But, but my book addresses all of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, if they don't want to hold off until my book comes out, I suggest they read Francis Collins' uh, The Language of God, because he explains it very well. I, I disagree with him a little bit. He thinks that genes are evidence of God. I don't see any evidence for God. I see a manifestation of God, hmm. just like evolution is a manifestation of God. Um, but God is supernatural. We can't have evidence of God. So that's one part of that book that I disagree with, but the rest of it... Uh, it's very good, and you can see how his mind worked in reconciling his faith with uh, his science. Mm-hmm. And mine worked a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of us. Uh, uh, Lee Strobel, who wrote a book on this, uh, was an atheist and came back to faith, and his book is pretty popular. Yeah. And uh, and uh, C.S. Lewis was a former atheist who came back to faith. Yeah. So there are lots of us out there who have written things. Yeah. It's funny, in the preface to my book, I mentioned my son saying, why do all these former atheists write books? <laughs> <laughs> and the truth is because we've thought about it a lot, yeah. more than most people. To come back to faith takes a lot of thinking and a lot of thought. Yeah. And... Uh, once we've gone through that transformation, we want to share it. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's a great place to end. So excellent. Thanks so much. My pleasure. <laughs>